Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Taman, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Ahora los hechos de los apóstoles, capítulo 6. Creo que Leslie quiere leer. Yo puedo leer hoy semana que viene, ¿sí? Oh, Gavino. Qué bueno. Thank you, Gavino. He must not love my pronunciation as much. ¿Cuál es el 1 a 7? 1 a 7, uh, ok. Sí. El sumo sacerdote dijo, entonces, ¿es esto así? Y él dijo, varones, hermanos y padres, oíd, el Dios de la gloria apareció a nuestro padre Abraham, estando en Mesopotamia antes que morarse en... O capítulo 6, lo oh, capítulo, okay. estoy en 7. Okay. En aquellos días, como crecieron el... Número de los discípulos, hubo murmuraciones de los griegos contra los <coughs> hebreos de que las viudas de aquellos eran desentendidas en la distribución diaria. Entonces los doces convocaron a la multitud de los discípulos y dijeron, no es justo que nosotros dejamos la palabra de Dios para servir a las Mesas, buscad pues hermosos de entre vosotros a siete varones de buen testimonio, lleno del Espíritu Santo y de sabiduría, a quienes encargar, encargaremos de este trabajo y nosotros persistiremos en la oración y el ministerio de la palabra. Agrado la propuesta a toda la multitud y dijeron al a Esteban, varón, lleno de fe y del Espíritu Santo, a Felipe, el prócoro, el Nicanor, a Timón, a Parmenas y a Nicolás, prosalito de Antiquía, a los cuales presentaron ante los apóstoles, quienes ora, orando les impusieron las manos y crecían la palabra del Señor y el Número de los discípulos se multiplicaban grandemente en Jerusalén. También muchos de los sacerdotes obedecían a la fe. Gracias. Okay. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would bless our time together studying your word. Pray that as we think about leadership in the local church and how you have designed it to function, that we might think about it rightly and that we would all be encouraged together both to love and support leaders, but then also to grow into leaders ourselves. ask that you would do this for the glory of your name. Amen. If you've been following the situation in Ukraine, one of the most remarkable stories that has come out of this entire crisis has been the way that the Ukrainian president has responded. Uh, Ukrainian president was at one time an an actor and a comedian, uh, President Zelensky, who most people in the world did not even know his name before Friday, now uh, has become a household name for the way that he has responded, whereas Previously, he was seen giving speeches just like every president does, wearing a suit and those kinds of things. And then in the last few days, he has now been seen wearing military fatigues and a bulletproof vest and refusing um, requests to take him out of the country and responding instead by saying that he will stay and defend his country alongside his people. And it's been incredible to see because, honestly, in three days, he has probably taught the world more about leadership than maybe any book that any of us have ever read. The sacrifice and the courage that it has taken to do what he does. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about leadership in the church, it is true that both in the world, whether leaders of a nation like that and in the church, the single greatest thing a leader can give to people is character, is how they respond and who they are. And if you want to bring this again into the context of the local church, we might also say, I'm not the first to say this, but we might also say that godliness in a leader is more important than giftedness in a leader. So who a leader is his motivations, who God is creating him or her to be is more important than their skills or training or ability to speak or serve or whatever else. Godliness beats giftedness seven days out of seven. And so I want to make that statement up front because Acts 6, the question that we're going to answer together is what is the role of leaders in the local church? What kind of leaders has God given to the church? But before we get there, we have to know that the first qualification for any leader in a church is godliness. It is to mirror the character of God to the people that that person is leading. Then and only then will everything else they do in ministry actually matter. You may not be the gift, most gifted person Ever, I may not be and am not the most gifted leader ever, but if by God's grace, growing in godliness, then he can use me and he can use us. So Acts 6, let's look a little bit at the situation of what is going on in Acts 6. You notice at the beginning of our passage that the number of the disciples was growing. So the church was increasing in number. This kind of takes us back to Acts 2.47, where we were a couple weeks ago, where we read that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then in chapter 5, if we had read that, we would, we would have seen that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. 
And then here, the disciples, those who are following Jesus, are increasing. So what happens when a church increases in number, the church also increases in need. You see that immediately at the very beginning of this passage, right? So the word of God was spreading and God was using the leaders of this church in really remarkable and even miraculous ways to heal the sick. The apostles were doing that, casting out demons. They were doing that. They were doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. God was confirming that their message was true. And so you can imagine that with that kind of ministry, on top of the generosity and hospitality that the church was showing to people, it was drawing all kinds of people, especially the sick, the poor, the elderly, here in our text, even widows, who in the first century had no one, if they did not have a family, no one to care for them, and really very little opportunities to make a living for themselves. So widows especially were completely dependent on others. We read in James that true religion consists in caring for orphans and widows because they are the ones who need people the most. And so here you have widows who are coming to the church. And I was struck by this because one way that we know that the gospel that we are proclaiming is the same gospel as one proclaimed in Scripture is the kinds of people who are drawn to the message, is seeing who does God bring. If it's people who have great need, not only physically, but spiritually, relationally, all those, if it's people who have great need, then we can know that we're preaching the true gospel message. And so that's what they were doing here. So all these people were being drawn in and the church was increasing in number and in need. And also the church was increasing in diversity. Do you guys see that Luke, who's writing this, makes a very careful observation that there were Hellenists and there were Hebrews in the church. So Hellenists were Jewish converts to Christianity, but who spoke primarily Greek. And then Hebrews were also Jewish converts to Christianity, but they spoke primarily Aramaic. So they had similar cultural backgrounds, but they had a a language barrier between them and, and a different language that they spoke. And so the problem that arose in the church was that a complaint was lodged by the Hellenists, by these Greek-speaking Christians, against the Hebrews, because the Hellenists were saying that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this would have been referring to the distribution of food and other basic necessities in order for them to be able to live. And so the Hellenists were upset because their widows were being neglected. Now, we don't get any indication in the text, and if you're looking at it, you'll see that this was any one person's sin that was causing this. Doesn't seem like the people in the early church were intentionally favoring one group over the other. We don't get the sense that, that somebody is personally responsible for this. It seems like it was just an administrative oversight. That as the church grew, their organization and their structure didn't quite grow as well. And so they ran into this issue. And so even when this problem was caused in the church, even though it was not caused by somebody's sin specifically, it still affected the entire church. And it still threatened to kind of break the unity of the church 
as well, which I think is interesting. Luke doesn't call out a sin, but he says that, hey, one part of the body is suffering and therefore the entire body is suffering. And so a solution needs to be found. We need to have an answer to what's going on. And so you saw that the apostles, that's the 12 in verse 2, they, this was brought to their attention. They knew that this was happening. Earlier in Acts, the apostles were actually in charge of this distribution, and now it seems like this has gotten a little bit too big, so it's too much for them to oversee. So the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so what they are saying is they were reminding the church of what their primary calling was. It was to proclaim, to preach, to teach the gospel. And so they knew that they had to equip other people to serve. Now, we would be wrong at this point to conclude that the apostles don't, just don't want to get their hands dirty that they just want to sit back and kind of do the teaching, let everybody else do the hard ministry. If you have that in your mind, read chapters 4 and 5. The apostles were being beaten and arrested and put in prison. So they were not trying to just kind of stay out of harm's way, if you will. But what they were doing was saying that if we spend all of our time doing many different things, we will neglect our primary calling, which is the ministry of the word, and we will exclude others from serving in ministry. So rather than assume the responsibility all on themselves and exclude the church from actually doing the work of ministry, they had the wise decision to empower the church to do the work of ministry. And so the church responds, right? In verse 3, the apostles say, Brothers, referring to everybody, brothers and sisters, the entire church, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of wisdom, or full of the spirit rather, and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, if you saw the list of names there, those seven people were all Hellenists as well. These are Greek names. And so these would have been people who understood the language of these widows who were being neglected, who knew how to kind of better care for them. But more importantly than that, these seven servants were godly says that they need to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then we get a little description of Stephen, who was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, same Stephen who will be martyred in a couple chapters for preaching the gospel. And then also Philip, who later goes and shares Christ with an Ethiopian eunuch, who's the first non-Jewish person there who's an African who took the gospel back to his homeland. And so these were people who were godly. These servants were godly, and they're brought to the apostles by the church. And then verse 6, they set them before the apostles, and the apostles confirmed that these are indeed good, godly servants, and they commissioned them, right? They prayed, laid their hands on them, and they commissioned them. And what's neat is we don't hear about this specific situation becoming an issue again in the book of Acts. So it seems like their solution that they found worked. And we know that's the case because later in the New Testament, what we see here in Acts 6 grows into the leadership structure that God gives for the church for all time. And so I wanted to overview that situation in Acts 6 so that we see what's going on and hopefully so that you'll see that these seven verses are kind of the early 
signs of how God has designed leaders to work in the church. Right, so you have apostles and servants. So there's a leadership structure that is introduced here in Acts 6 that's going to be developed later on in the New Testament. My dad is here and he's an architect and he will know that there are initial drawings that you make that will then turn into the finished product later on. So these are like the initial kind of outlines of what leadership in the church is going to look like that's going to be filled in later in the New Testament. So Acts 6 doesn't say everything there is to say about leaders, but it does give us a basic outline. So what that means is that the apostles here in Acts 6, 6 are functioning like pastors. So there is a similarity between the ministry that the apostles have and the ministry that pastors have. Now, the New Testament uses three words to describe pastors. Pastors, elders, and overseers. These three words are used synonymously throughout the New Testament. If you're curious about that, you can jot Acts 20 in your notes if you're taking notes and go look at that passage there. Paul is speaking to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, and he uses pastors, elders, and overseers to describe them in their ministry. So pastors, elders, overseers, these are synonymous terms that all refer to the same office in the church, which I'll just use as pastors uh, for the rest of our time this morning. But secondly, this chapter, these servants, as you probably noticed, are probably early deacons. The word deacon means servant. And so these people who were selected, they are Deacons. Now at Lonsdale Community Church, we have three pastors or elders, myself, Randy Pardue, and Clayton Wood. So we serve as pastors with equal authority. No one of us has more or less authority than the other because we believe that is a good, healthy, biblical model of leadership where we share in authority in the church. And then we have deacons. So Bob Hammett serves as a deacon in our church, specifically overseeing our benevolence ministry and does a wonderful job at that. So our church is structured like this. There's two leadership positions in the church, pastors or elders and deacons. So let's ask the question, okay, what do each of these do? What's the role of a pastor? What's the role of deacons? So pastors are shepherds. So similar to the apostles in Acts 6, pastors are responsible for the spiritual direction of the church. Pastors are responsible for the spiritual direction of the church. You saw that when the apostles said that we will give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. So pastors preach or teach and pastors pray. That is at the center of the calling of what it means to be a pastor. Or as somebody else has said, pastoring is talking to people about God and talking to God about people. It's very simple in that sense. So pastors are to be students of the Bible. To be a pastor is to be someone who loves the scriptures, not just because we get to teach it, but for our own souls, for my own soul. And so my First responsibility to you is to nourish and feed my own soul in the word daily. And then from there to, by God's grace, be able to teach and communicate that to you. So pastors love the Bible. And this is very simple for us to, to understand, right? Pastors love the Bible and the Bible is what we use to teach and lead the church. Just as 
teachers have a curriculum that they follow, and coaches have a handbook that they follow. Pastors have the Bible, and that is where we lead from. And so 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, do your best as a pastor to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the call to be a pastor is a call to study the word, to interpret it correctly, to explain it clearly, and to apply it appropriately so that it actually makes a difference in your life. So that's how I understand, and I know Randy and Clayton understand their callings here at LCC, the central thing to be, the ministry of the word. And so just personally, the moment I stop being a student of the Bible is the moment I am no longer qualified to be your pastor. And so prayerfully, that will never happen. So this takes a central role in my life, and as you can tell, it takes a central role in our church. We structure Sunday morning gatherings. The center point of a Sunday morning gathering is the sermon. Not because I am just some wonderful preacher, but because we believe the word is central to everything that we do in the church. The pastors are students of the scripture and pastors are men of prayer. Listen to what John Owen, a pastor several hundred years ago said. He said, a pastor may fill his pews, his communion role, and the mouths of the public, but what a pastor is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and nothing more. So pastors are to be men of prayer. And if there's one thing that we are tempted to treat as optional in the church, it's prayer think we can do everything else and that prayer can come after that, but it can't. And this begins with a pastor. A pastor who neglects prayer usually means that he's leading a church that is neglecting prayer. But a pastor who prioritizes prayer will be leading a church of people who also are prioritizing prayer. So it's my hope that we do that on Sunday morning in our gathering. At 10 a.m. every Sunday morning right there, we have a prayer meeting that's open to leaders and anyone else who want to join, that we just pray for our church for this time and for the different ministries of everything that's going on. So I hope that flowing from me and all our pastors to you is that we want to prioritize prayer. And so hear me say there's no greater need in the church today than pastors who prioritize teaching the word and praying to the Lord. So in this way, pastors oversee and guide the ministries of the church. Did you notice how the apostles said that they wanted to have the people select seven servants, and they said, whom we will appoint, verse 3, exercising oversight, whom we will appoint to this duty, and then back down in verse 6, who they prayed and laid their hands on. So God entrusted pastors, just like he did in this passage with the responsibility of leading the church, of overseeing the various ministries that go on in the church. So pastors exercise oversight over a children's ministry or a hospitality ministry or benevolence or outreach or discipleship, different things. And so monthly, we as your elders, pastors, we meet to spend time in the word and in prayer and exercising godly oversight over our congregation so that we can, by God's grace, have a direction and a plan and a place that God wants us to go. So pastors should not, though, and cannot 
lead the church on their own. You saw that here in Acts 6. It's amazing how the Lord uses problems and, and a solution to create then a good process for how things should go in the future. So in Acts 6, the apostles can't take care of everything for themselves, so the office of deacon is created. So if pastors are primarily responsible for the spiritual direction of the church, deacons are primarily responsible for the practical needs of the church. So if you want to think about it also like this, deacons are those who both stabilize the church and who serve the church. So what do I mean when I say that deacons stabilize the church? Well, you notice that the church was in a wobbly point in Acts 6. It was at risk of tipping over if things didn't get kind of put under control. And so the Lord brings these servants, these deacons in to kind of stabilize things and maintain the unity of the church. As another pastor put it, deacons are like shock absorbers. Who, When things are, are potentially going wrong, they kind of absorb the brunt of it and they present a solution. And so that's what they do here in Acts 6. And then also the word that we most commonly think of, which is right, is that deacons are those who serve. They're the leading servants in the church. And the primary way that deacons do this is by helping to meet physical and financial needs that may arise within the local church. That's exactly what they were doing here, and we see that at different points throughout the rest of the New Testament. So if elders oversee and guide the ministry of the church, then deacons serve to execute the ministry of the church by maintaining unity and by serving those who are in need. So a deacon might be someone who leads out in that specific hospitality ministry, or a deacon is someone who facilitates Baptism and the Lord's Supper, when that occurs. A deacon is someone who receives benevolence needs that may arise within the congregation and how the congregation can meet those different needs. Deacons may care for the building or the space that is used. So just very practical needs that a congregation has. That's why God has given deacons to help execute and serve the body in that way, help do the work of ministry. But also you'll notice, and just as we close this passage, the congregation is not absent here either, are they? Did you see how the congregation helped select the leaders and they also humbly submitted to their leaders? So they had a role in choosing these seven servants and what the apostles kind of advised that they do. It said it pleased the whole gathering. So the whole gathering had a trust in the leadership of the apostles that what they were suggesting was good and right and would lead to the health of the church. And so the congregation actually found these leaders from among them. That's the best way that leaders in the church are brought up is from within the church. And so they found these servants to Serve, pick out from among you, the apostles said, and so they did. And so hear me say that the church is not like a corporation where there's a few very powerful leaders at the top who just make unilateral decisions that everybody else has to listen to and just get in line. It's not how the church is intended to function. And, and you maybe you know either from stories from others or just personally from your own experience of how leadership can be misused and abused in the context 
of a local church. We know what it's like for leaders to be more concerned about consolidating authority than about loving and serving those they lead. And so even if you're here this morning and and maybe you have that in the back of your mind, all the ways that leaders have misused their positions of authority, let me just say to you, I, I cannot undo that experience, but I can tell you that God can redeem that experience. And indeed, that's what he has done. There was a point in time where his people, where their leaders were doing nothing but feeding themselves, where they were doing nothing but excusing their own sin and heaping heavier standards on the people that they led. There was a time when they sat idly by while people were like sheep without a shepherd. And how did God respond when that happened? Ezekiel 34 tells us that God himself said, I will shepherd my people. I myself will search out and will find my sheep and I will lead them. No wonder then that when Jesus came, he called himself the great shepherd who cares for and who has compassion on sheep who were scattered whose leaders had not fulfilled their obligations but Jesus came to show us what it looks like to be a godly leader to lead by serving and by laying his own life down by giving his own life for his sheep giving us that beautiful model and picture of what humble servant leadership looks like and so if you're tempted to just say all authority all leadership is bad I would just encourage you to refocus your mind onto Jesus and and to tell you that if leaders are leading in the way that Jesus himself has given by example and has commanded, then it can be a good and right and beautiful thing to submit to leadership. And prayerfully, that can be something that we continue and always demonstrate here at Lonsdale Community Church, both for those of us who are here and for the community around us who needs to see the way that God has designed his church to function because I don't want to miss verse seven. After all this happens, after structure and organization is given, these offices are are doled out, servants know where they're supposed to go. What does it say? The word of God continued to increase The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So healthy leadership in the church actually served the mission of the church to see to it that more people came to know who Christ is and they came to be saved. So just like every member serving as a minister last week fueled the mission of the church, so too Healthy, godly leadership fuels the mission of the church so that others can come to know that Jesus is Lord and he is worth following. And ultimately, he is the one we're submitting our lives to. So I pray that this picture of leadership is encouraging to you. I pray that it's something that even leads you, if you are in a position, if you're thinking about, okay, what does it look like to grow and to be a leader in Christ? Here you have a model and a picture of what Christ-like leadership looks like.
So let's pray that these things would be true and then we'll share our meal together.